For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're in, uh, we're in Daniel chapter 9 talking about the 70 weeks. And so we're in this section like we talked about last week. We, we've kind of moved through the major narrative sections of Daniel. And now we're working through the prophetic, uh, the visions of Daniel. And we saw, you know, in chapter 2, there was the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar with the statue. And chapter 7 was the beast. Chapter 8 was the visions of the ram and the goat that we studied last week. And what we're seeing is, is that these all fit together into a larger picture of something that God is trying to show Daniel so that it can be recorded and it has application in his day, things like Nebuchadnezzar coming to know the Lord, but it also has a view for future generations as evidence and confidence that we can have that God is real, that he speaks, and what he has said has been preserved and recorded in the Bible for us to have confidence not only and how he has worked in human history, but how he is going to work in human future. And that is a powerful part of what we want to look at. You know, these, these visions described in incredibly accurate ways what was happening with Babylon, Media Persia, and Greece, and lesser so with Rome. But the prophecies that we've looked at I've also talked about two other kingdoms that we haven't really talked about. With the statue, there was the feet of, that were made of iron and clay. It was sort of a mixed Rome. Some people call it New Rome. Uh, and we haven't really talked about that at all. And then there's the kingdom of the Lord. Remember the picture in the statue where the kingdoms of men would come along, but that God would bring a halt to that and usher in his own kingdom. And so we go back and we look at Daniel 7, and we start in verse 12, and we see he says, as for the rest of the beasts, we're back where we were last week talking about the different beasts, and the beasts represent different kingdoms. Their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so when we get to this vision of the progression of human history and how the kingdoms of men will come and the kingdoms of men will go, there will come a point where God steps in and says, there's one final kingdom and it's not a kingdom of men, it's the kingdom of God. And so if you remember, there was that picture of the statue that he looked at and each of those, each of the elements, the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron represented different kingdoms of men. And in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had all the way back in chapter 2, there was a stone that it said that was cut without human hands that crushed and destroyed all the statue, wiped out the kingdoms of men, and that that stone grew and came to fill the whole earth and dominate it. And that stone, it says, is a kingdom as well. It's God himself coming to set things right and bring an end to corrupt human kingdoms 
and to set forward an eternal kingdom of his own where he would live among his creation. And he would rule, and we would see an end to pain and suffering, selfishness and greed, and that things would be set right the way that he intended them all the way back in the garden. An incredible picture, an incredible vision. So what does Daniel tell us concerning the future of that eternal kingdom? Right? That's, that's something that we want to know. It's like if God says at some point this is going to happen, the kingdoms of men are going to come to a halt. But what does that look like? And when is that going to happen? And we get some evidence of that. When we turn to Daniel 9, and we start in verse 1, we have a new vision, another vision that Daniel gets. He says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Asaris, of, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So this is important, right? Remember, Daniel is in captivity. He is a Jewish, Israel, Jerusalem-born Jewish noble who Nebuchadnezzar, decades beforehand, had gone in and destroyed Jerusalem and taken Daniel as a captive and many of his Jewish friends with him as a captive into Babylon, which was something that had been predicted and fully understood by the prophets of the Old Testament that this would happen not because God was going to quit on his people, but because they had violated his promises. And he was going to allow this to happen for a time. And so now Daniel's an old man. Daniel's in his 70s, maybe his early 80s at this point. Right? And he's thinking about what's happened. And this is happening in the first year, he says, of Darius in 539 B.C., which would have been about 67 years after the captivity began. So he was a teen or a young teen when he was captured. They were hauled off. It's 67 years later, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, who says what? Who says that the captivity will last for 70 years. And he's like, oh my gosh, we're almost done. It's almost time to go back because God has promised us that we would only be here for 70 years. And he's reading stuff in Jeremiah like this in Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years has been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. I mean, it's not like this is nebulous, strange wording, right? I mean, it's very clear God is like, there's a reason and there's a purpose behind this. You're going to think that I've abandoned you because your enemies are going to come in and destroy you, but I have not abandoned you. This is part of the plan, and this is a natural consequence of your actions in violating the covenant. Which then leads us to another important question. Why would God allow Jerusalem to fall anyway? What was, what was it that Israel did? What kinds of things were, were, were happening that made this something that God felt needed to happen. Well, Daniel describes it a little bit. As he's remembering and reading Jeremiah, he has this awesome prayer, and he starts in chapter 9, verse 11, making reference to this. 
Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against it. Daniel's like, look, my perspective here, Lord, is you did exactly what you warned us you were going to do before any of this happened. We betrayed you in the ways exactly that you warned us not to betray you. And the consequences that have come upon us are exactly what you said. And all we have to do is look back into the book of Moses and see that we are guilty of exactly the laws that you told us not to break. And so we can do the same thing. We just go back and further a little bit into the Old Testament, say to like Leviticus 26, and we can read a warning by God that this is what's going to happen if they betray it. He says, I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settled in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you and your enemy are in your enemy's land. The land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation. It will observe the rest, which it did not observe under your Sabbaths while you were living in it. And so there's a law written in Leviticus that he's talking about here that's very important. Leviticus 25, 2 through 7 said that a law for the Jewish people was as they live in the land that God had promised them, they could have six years of plenty, six years of, of harvest, where they would gather up, but that they should store some of the grain as they gather it because every seventh year was to be what they called a Sabbath year. Sabbath just means rest. Where they would give the land a rest and they would not plant crops that year. They would live off of what they had set aside for the previous six years. Which you think about that, and if you understand modern agriculture, that's a brilliant idea. Really helpful for keeping... The, um, the richness of the soil and the health of the environment. So God had proclaimed this, but Israel had completely ignored it. They had completely ignored it, and, you know, not just once, but 70 times. And what that means is if you think about it, every six years, they were, the seventh year, was they were not supposed to have a Sabbath where they, year where they didn't plant. And if they had ignored that 70 times, it means for 490 years, no one had paid any attention to this. And God had said, if you don't follow this law, I will take you out of there so that all of those Sabbath years can happen consecutively and you'll be gone and no one will be planting crops in Israel for 70 years. That's what he's warning them in Leviticus 26. And that's exactly what happened. 490 years of ignoring, of ignoring Sabbath years. You turn to Second Chronicles 36, and it says the same thing in verse 20. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath, until 70 years were complete. So Daniel, who's very familiar with the Old Testament, had access to, these, to this literature, is 67 years into the 70 years, and he's putting it all together, and he's like, it's time. 
It's almost time. And how awesome that is, that God is going to re- re- return his people to their land. We're going to build a temple again. We're going to be our own nation again. We'll resume the sacrifice. And the time of the Sabbath years will be fulfilled. And obviously and clearly, we need to not forget this lesson moving forward. Right? And so the first part of Daniel 9 is Daniel goes into a deep prayer in verses 4 through 19 where he's explaining to God, he's like, we totally get it, we totally understand. You are just and you are good and you are right. And we are grateful, Lord, and, and, and we repent, God, and we will change and we will, we will keep the covenant that you have made for us. Only be faithful and, and let us return. And as he is praying that prayer, we see in verse 21, it says, while he was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who he had seen in a previous vision, the angelic being that had helped him interpret those previous visions that we've studied, came to him, he says, and gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have come now forth to give you insight and understanding. Seventy sets of seven have been decreed for the people of your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. What's 70 sets of seven? That's 490 years. They're standing at a, at a crux, at a crossroad, right? For 490 years, they've, they've forsaken the law of God and the Sabbaths. And what he's saying is you've got 490 years moving forward. There's a 490-year stretch where God is going to do something that's going to bring the word of the Lord into fulfillment in your lives. And so the context here is very important. The 70 sets of seven. In the Hebrew, the word is Shabua, which is sets of seven. Clearly, what this is referring to are those Sabbath years. That was the whole context for what he was reading in Jeremiah for the curse that Israel was enduring. And so we begin to see that these sets of seven have meaning. And he says in verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sets of seven and 62 sets of seven, and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now, if you're like me and math is not your strong suit, you're sitting here and you're like, okay, this is a really weird way of talking about this. I think it helps to have more of a visual representation, right? What's happened here is a timeline is being set. And he's saying that the starting point of the timeline is the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem with moats. And that the end of the timeline is when Messiah will come. And so we have a start point and we have an end point, right? And that we know that the length of time between those two points is seven sevens. He says there's two sets of seven. There's seven sevens and there's 62 sevens. So when we understand that these are Sabbath years, these sets of seven are Sabbath years, all we have to do is we have to say, okay, well, seven times seven is there's one set of 49 years and there's another set of 434 years. And you add those together, and you say, okay. So he's saying 483 years from the issuing of the decree, Messiah will come. And we wind up in one of those situations where if we can figure out what those endpoints are, 
we have a pretty good opportunity to confirm and look deeply into whether or not we're dealing with a God of prophecy, a God who understands things beyond human understanding, who could tell us what's happening hundreds of years before, or if we're just dealing with madness and, you know, Daniel got some bad mushrooms or something, you know, and he's trying to, and he's recording this stuff and it makes no sense whatsoever. So if only we had the starting point, the issuing of the decree, a reliable date for that, we could count forward the 483 years and figure that out. So follow with me here. He's saying from the issuing of the decree, there will be 483 years. Now there's another thing that if we're going to use the Julian calendar, our frame of reference, we need to actually convert this because Babylon and Israel during this time would have used a lunar calendar. Okay? And the lunar calendar has 360 days. We have 365 point something, something, something. Right? They had a 360 day year. And so if we really want to get accurate about this, we really want to understand and try to measure this, we have to convert those 483 years from their lunar calendar into our solar calendar. So to do that is relatively simple. You take the 483 years, solar years, 360-day years, and you convert it into days. So he's saying 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree... Because we have the same day that they did, 24 hours. Okay? And now we're even. And so we take those 173,880 days, and we divide it by, to be precise, 365.242199 days. Which is how many days are in our year, right? Because we have a leap year. And when we divide it by that, we get 476 years plus 24.7 days. That's the true measurement of time that we can look at to put it in our context. From the issuing of the decree to Messiah is 476 years and a little bit of change. So again, if we have the issuing of the decree, we can plug that in and then we might have something really interesting, right? So how do we do that? What is the issuing of the decree? What decree... Uh, to rebuild the temple or rebuild Jerusalem. Well, we look back on the historical record and we actually find that there are four different decrees issued at different times to rebuild Jerusalem. Cyrus was the first that we can find who in 539 BC decided to allow the Jews to return. Darius they kind of forgot about it. They, didn't, they did some of the work. They started the work, but they had, a, they had people opposing them, and it didn't go along. And Darius then uh, came afterwards and was reminded that Cyrus had said this was okay. And so he confirmed Cyrus's decree, and the work resumed. Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. declared to Ezra that they could go back and rebuild. And then Artaxerxes again told Nehemiah to go back in 444 B.C., so, from the issuing of the decree becomes a little bit hard to track because we have four different decrees over a period of a hundred years allowing them to go back and rebuild and what is that about and how does that work and how should we look at it? But, there's something that sets one decree apart from all the others and it's very specific to the prophecy that we just read. And it's very helpful. 
These three decrees right here, the first three, are to allow them to go and rebuild their houses and rebuild their community. But none of those allow them to rebuild defensive fortifications. Why is that important? Why does that matter? It matters because the trust between the rulers of Persia, you know, they're saying, look, you can go back, but we may need to reconquer you and we don't want to have a big siege. So you can go and you can build, but you have to trust us to protect you. We don't want you to go dig in and fortify yourself and make yourselves able to defend against us and we'll have a big war again. So all of the first three decrees were about rebuilding homes, rebuilding the temple, but not rebuilding the defensive fortifications, right? However, when we read the prophecy that we just read, it's very specific it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So very specifically, the decree which the vision and the prophecy is specifically talking about is a decree that is the full rebuilding, including moat and plaza, the defensive fortifications, which correlates with one decree, the fourth one, from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in 444. It's the only decree where he's like, you know what? You can be your own people and you can go and rebuild the whole thing and we'll use our money to do it. God moves Artaxerxes in this incredible way through the time of Nehemiah. And what is the book of Nehemiah about? It's about rebuilding the wall. So the prophecy is very specific. The decree that includes the defensive fortifications, we know the decree. You can look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. This is not a biblical, like just, you know, people who believe in the Bible. That date is 444 B.C. We know it. It's there. And well, so all we have to do is take 444 B.C., plug that number into our timeline, and say, let's move forward 476 years. And let's see what this prophecy is all about. Well, you move forward 476 years, and you get to 32 AD. Which is an interesting year, for sure. Jesus is hanging around. He's right in the middle of his ministry, for sure. You know, but why would it be Messiah comes? He says that 476 years from the issuing of the decree, Messiah will come. And you're like, well, I mean, why wouldn't it be Jesus' birth? Right? Or Jesus' death, the resurrection. You could see those things, but why 32 AD? And the truth is, is we don't exactly know the date of Jesus' birth or the date of Jesus' crucifixion. We know it was, you know, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We have extra biblical sources that confirm that that is, is true. And so we have a, a range, a date set. But, we do have some favored dates that when you look at the whole picture of what's happening, and what scholars generally agree on is the most likely date for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is 33 AD, not 32. And then we also, though, realize we have a problem with our math, which is we just went from BC to AD. And when you do that, you go from B.C. to A.D., you run into a problem, what? Because there's no zero year. There's not zero A.D. or zero B.C. You understand? So when you convert and go, and you want to count the years, going from B.C. to A.D., you have to add one to count for the zero year. 
And what we wind up with is that this prophecy seems to be saying from the issuing of the decree to 44 B.C., there'll be 476 years and what do we say, 24 or 24.7 days. You wind up not just in 33 A.D., but you wind up in the spring of 33 A.D., the time of the Passover, which is an extra... If, if, if it's true that 33 A.D., which scholars do believe is, is one of the best dates that fits the picture of everything that we see in the New Testament, that spring, that Passover season, would be the time where we have the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time for people raving palm leaves and welcoming him as Messiah. We have the Last Supper, a Passover meal, and we have the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty crazy target that Daniel just hit there, right? I mean, I hope that you follow the logic of everything that we just looked at because we have the 70 sets of seven and, you know, the the seven sets of seven and the 62 sets of seven and we have to go from lunar years to calendar years, but we do all of that so that we can have a precise clear picture that once we set that 44 BC number for the issuing of the decree, we wind up somewhere and where we wind up should be very significant in relationship to who the Messiah is and what he's all about. And it appears very much like we have an incredible picture of that. The time when Jesus came and died on the cross being predicted almost 500 years before the event itself. What does that mean? How should we process that? You know, it's not as though Jesus would have had control over this, right? He would be like, you know, have to be born within the right time frame. And in fact, you know, a lot of people say, well, Daniel 9, you know, no one ever believed that. And, you know, that, this is all just, you know, fanciful imagination of people that are already Christians. <clears throat> but if you think about the Gospels, right, at the time of Jesus' birth, there was a guy named Herod the Great, right? And Herod the Great was concerned about something, wasn't he? He was concerned that the Messiah was going to be born and, and represent a threat to his rule. Remember? And he gathered the Magi together and he said, hey, look, you guys, if you hear anything about this Messiah, these wise men, the, these, these religious rulers, he was saying, you know, if you guys hear anything about this Messiah, you let me know, right? And he starts killing the firstborn sons, the infant sons in Bethlehem because they're looking right around this time. Why? In part because they understood Daniel 9. They're looking for the Messiah. And we go back and look at a Jewish speculation and history over this event. And this is right around the time where they were looking for a Messiah to show up because they were dealing with the same kind of prophecies like the one we just looked, like in, looked at in Daniel 9. They were looking for him. Jesus had no control over where he would be born, how old he would be, or what, uh, what date he would be born in order to fit in with this prophecy. He certainly wouldn't have a lot of control over when he would be crucified, right? Talking to Pontius Pilate, hey, can we put this off a few weeks? I've got a target I'm trying to hit here. But it lines up. 
in incredible detail. This couldn't be faked by him or his followers, right? He can't, you know, it's this, this whole triumphal entry thing. Can, you, can we get all Jerusalem, get out here? We're trying to fulfill a prophecy here. You know, come on, everybody, bring your palm leaves, right? I mean, well, that, that whole language would have been blasphemy. They would have assumed, you know, that he should be killed and stoned unless they were moved out of a genuine, authentic belief in their hearts that this is the time where the Messiah was supposed to come and here's a guy in Jerusalem in the blind sea and the lame are healed and the dead are raised. He fit into that picture just like so many of these other things in Daniel have fit into that picture. And what does the prophecy say? The prophecy says there'll be seven sets of seven and there'll be 62 sets of seven and then the Messiah will be cut off. That certainly would be an accurate depiction of what happened with Jesus, wouldn't it? He lived, he served, he went to the cross and he died down to the month that Daniel predicted it. We have to look at this, and I think, you know, a lot of times people say, well, yeah, there's lots of weird stuff in the world, Ryan, and there's lots of weird prophecies and things that have happened. People say stuff. Take Nostradamus, for example. Yeah, let's take Nostradamus for an example, okay? Here's a prophecy from Century 10, Quatrain 72, This is often quoted online by supporters of Nostradamus as being an accurate prophecy that foretells 9-11. The year 1999, seven months from the sky, will come the great king of terror to resuscitate the great king of the Mongols before and after Mars reigns by good luck. Well, you see... If you take the ones and you turn them into nines, and you take the nines and you turn them into ones, what do you get? Nine, one, one, one. Nine, eleven, and an extra one that we don't need. (laughs) And clearly, this is an amazing prophecy hundreds of years in advance by some kind of mystic. Let's take another one, also often referred to as a prophecy for nine, eleven. At 45 degrees, the sky will burn. There was burning in 9-11, and there's burning here. Fire to approach the great new city. New city. New York. Aha! In an instant, a great scattered flame will leap up when no one will want to demand proof of the Normans. If somebody's eating mushrooms, it's not Daniel. This doesn't make sense. This is so broad, so general, right? Like, would it make me a great prophet if I said, on the corner of Indianola and Arcadia, there will be an accident in the next five years? No, that's like one of the worst intersections in the city, right? I'm not a prophet, and I'm speaking way too broadly to be considered a prophet if I make a prediction like that. Trust me, sometime, I don't know when, there'll be an accident there, right? But what Daniel's doing is saying, 659 years from now, a yellow Chevy will hit an android with the serial number of X4972. And you're like, that's a little bit different. If that happens, that'd be really crazy. That would really mean something. Here's Nostradamus' most famous prophecy. 
right here. Century 2, Quatrain 24. Beasts ferocious with hunger will cross the rivers. The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. And to a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. And they're like, Hitler. Hitler, right? That's what that's about. And you're like, okay, I mean, you know, Hister, Hitler, maybe, right? But why not Hitler, right? And, you know, again, you're, you're talking about things in such generalities that if you give enough time, something will happen, or many things. You know, one of the interesting things about Nostradamus' prophecies is often they're attributed to one thing, and then another generation things happen and they attribute it to another. And they just keep attributing, you know, <laughs> Google Nostradamus and Donald Trump, and, you know, you'll see some stuff, right? <laughs> 2017 is a big year for Nostradamus and the Mayan calendar and all that stuff that happened, right? My point is this. There's something qualitatively different in another league completely about what we just looked at in Daniel 9. Not only that, but when you look at what we studied in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 2, and you put it all together, you have something that is unique, unique to the Bible alone in terms of the type of prophecy and the exactness of what's being described here. Yes, it requires some hard work, some scholarship. No, we can't stand here and say we are 100% confident that we have, you know, all the pieces of this put together. But what we do have is a rational, informed, highly likely formula to put this together in a way that seems too specific to be coincidence. 476 years from the issuing of the decree, the Messiah will come. How confident should we be in this? I think we should be amazed by it. I think we should be blown away. Now, if something happens where dates change and, you know, the new information comes to light, and yes, there are alternative explanations of this, but this is, I believe, the most reasonable, the most rational way of approaching this passage. And yes, there are critics. But that picture of those 70 sets of seven, those Shabua, being Sabbath years makes complete sense when you study Leviticus and you study Jeremiah and you understand the purpose and the meaning of the Babylonian captivity. And that as Daniel ponders that, those exact scriptures, that exact consequence, an angel appears to him and tells him that 70 more sets of seven, another 490 years have been ordained, and that 62 of those sevens and seven of those sevens correlate to the Messiah coming. And then you do a responsible calculation of where that is, and you wind up in 33 AD. I do not believe that is a, con- that is a coincidence. And I think it would be quite a stretch, actually, to claim that it is. Is it unassailable? No. It's assailed. It's greatly assailed, right? But that's kind of how God works, isn't it? Is there a miracle or a prophecy or something that God has done that has been undeniable throughout human history? I mean, the people who stood at the edge of the Red Sea and saw it part, right, and walked through 
Only months later, we're building a golden calf to worship a false god. There's something about us. I mean, we can, we can reject anything, you know? People are like, well, if God appeared in a big puffy cloud in the sky and said, I'm God, listen to me, right? You know, we'd start looking for hologram projectors and, you know, strange instances of mass hallucinations. Did somebody put something in our water? There's always a way. That's how faith works, is there is always a way. There is an alternative. God will not capture you and force you into faith. But he does give you reason. He does give you logic. He does give you an amazing and wonderful mind. And he does give you evidence, powerful, strong evidence, to lead you to the proper conclusion that he is God. That he knows you. And he wants to be in your life. We continue, because there's more, and we go to chapter 9, verse 26, it says, then after the 62 sets of seven, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who has come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will become, will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. So if we put in all of our numbers here in the timeline, 444 B.C., Right? 33 AD is the time of the triumphal entry and then the crucifixion. It says at the end of the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off. Jesus was crucified. And it says after that then will be the destruction of the city and the temple. Now what's important here is that we remember at the time that Daniel is receiving this prophecy in the 500s BC, there is no city and there is no temple. He's not just predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, he's predicting the rebuilding, reestablishing of the nation of Israel, and then its next destruction, which did actually happen at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD, a few decades after Christ. Jesus predicted it as well. He said, not one stone will be left upon another. And I mean, we've talked about how the Romans... They were like masters at coming in, and they were culture destroyers. They could go in and wipe out an entire nation. It's exactly what they did with the nation of Israel. Spread them all over the Roman Empire. Never to be seen again until about 2,000 years later, which is a story for another time. But the point here is, again, Messiah comes, just as said, is cut off, just as he said. And the results, the things that happen after the 62 sevens happen within a very short period of time exactly as he describes them. Now it leaves a whole list of other questions that are really interesting to ponder. Who is the prince to come? He says the people of the prince to come are the ones who destroy the temple, right? So the Romans, who is the prince to come? What about the empire of iron and clay, that mysterious you know, last empire of men in the statue that is the last empire before the kingdom of God comes? What about the terrifying beast with the ten horns? Those pictures still remain murky from what we've read so far. But that is the picture of the very end of the human kingdom, the human experience, right before the Messiah comes in. And I would argue that those are the parts of Daniel that are not yet fulfilled. Everything we've looked at so far 
was forecast by him hundreds of years before it would happen, but we can look back hundreds of years or thousands of years and confirm that it did. But there are parts of Daniel that are not yet fulfilled. How do we know? How does that fit in with this picture? Well, remember he said that there's 70 sets of seven, but we've only looked at 69 sets of seven. The seven sets of seven and the 62 sets of seven were the prediction for the Messiah, and then he would be cut off. But there's another set of seven. And does that set of seven take place right after the Messiah is cut off? Or is there a gap? Is there a time period between where the Messiah is cut off and there's a new set of seven? What we're going to look at in the next week is what we believe to be the best extrapolation of taking what we can take of the facts that we have from Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Daniel 11, Daniel 12, and Revelations, and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and take an honest look at what that last set of seven is. And I'm going to make zero predictions about when it will come, because I'm not a fool, and because I have no idea. Okay? And anybody who tells you they do, according to Jesus, don't believe them because he says no one knows, even he doesn't know except for the Father. But that last seven is crucial. What do we take away from this? What should be done? I think, you know, one thing we just really have to do is we just have to sit back and we have to contend with the question of who Jesus is. There's so much there. You know, you look at his teaching, his life, what he was, the prophecies about him, where he would be born, how he would be born, what time he would be born, the circumstances around his death, the purpose of his coming. The Old Testament is filled with forward-looking pictures of who this person would be, of who Messiah would be, what he would, what he would do, and what it would mean. History itself is filled with evidence that there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was born in the right time and the right place, who died under Pontius Pilate, crucified by the Roman Empire, and that a movement was sparked because there was an empty tomb, and he had predicted that after three days he would rise, and then there were thousands of eyewitnesses that saw him and began to believe. The Christian movement at the time of Jesus' death was pitifully small. A few dozen people. But by the end of the first century A.D., if you take that he died in 33 A.D., from the period of 33 A.D. to 100 A.D., there were tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Christians, who, many of whom had lived and seen the person, the man, Jesus Christ, and came to faith, The first 10,000 believers were the people that were in Jerusalem during the time of the crucifixion. Who is this person? It's the most important question. It's the thing that God wants us to wrestle with beyond all other things. And it's why so much of the Old and the New Testaments stand out like a giant blinking sign. Look at this. Think about this. Ponder this. That's why Daniel says in 9.23, give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. This is so important for us to understand.
If you've been here for this series, you've been here watching and, and wondering and looking with me at this progression of human history from Babylon to Media, Persia, to Greece, to Rome. What is the new Rome? What is mixed Rome? What is that about? Will there be an end to the human experiment? Will there be a time where the kingdoms of men come to an end and something better and greater, something good and just that will ultimately destroy evil and hold up love and peace and patience and kindness and perseverance and mercy? Is that the eternal destiny of the human condition? The God that created us for eternal love, love of Him and love for one another? Is that the great mystery of why we are so different from every other being that we have ever met? Nothing else on earth is anything like you. You're different in so many ways. And the question is why and does it mean anything? And Daniel stands over 2,000 years ago, banging a drum as loudly as he can, and it all points to one thing. God is real, and you matter. And you have a purpose. Maybe it's time to really recognize that something extraordinary is happening here. Can you explain away, Daniel? Yep. Can you explain away the crucifixion? Yep. Is there anything that we can give you that you can't explain away? Nope. But which side of reason do you have to stand on to explain away those things? Have you allowed the evidence to really be laid before you and examined it to discover truth? Because what we believe, what we earnestly believe, and what we want you to understand is that we believe that the pursuit of truth is the pursuit of God. They are one and the same. And that's why we don't need to fear questions or evidence. But we can look together to weigh out the claims and the ideas, but do them just service. And we believe that if you do that, you will find God. Maybe you can explain away the resurrection. Maybe you can explain away, Daniel. Can you explain away the hole in your heart? Can you explain away the part of you that we know is there because it was designed by God to yearn for Him? That you cannot be fulfilled. You cannot be satisfied. You cannot be whole without God in your life. The real God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. You sit there and you wonder, do I matter? Do I have purpose? Am I, am I what I was meant to be? Am I what I was supposed to be? Or is it ridiculous for me to even ponder the question of mean or meant or supposed or purpose? Because I must just be a bag of chemicals that are just reacting like everything else. Then why won't your heart Agree. Why do you know in the inner parts of your being that that is just not true? Why do you yearn for meaning? 
Revelations 1, 20, or Romans 1, 20 through 21 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The they there is you and me. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. God has made himself known in everything that's been made. You can look out into the world and you can see the vastness of the universe, the power of of nature. And you can look at the person sitting next to you and they are all forever marked deeply with the thumbprint of a creator. And we know this, and yet we rail against it. And there comes a time and there comes a place where we must be called upon to lay down that rebellion and pursue truth. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 2 says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My hope is is that some of you here have been listening, whether it's online or whether it's in this room, and that as you have progressed through this series, that you have been thinking and wondering about, could these things be true? And maybe you're coming to a point where you're realizing, I really need to come to that moment where I choose to open up my heart to God, and I answer, and I open the door, and I let Jesus Christ come into my life, and I make that scary step. And you're you're waiting for something, but you don't know what it is. Let me suggest to you that you stop waiting. And that you just take that time right now in this place, in this time, to make that step, to make that leap, because there is no better time than now. Those of us who have done that will tell you it's the best decision that we've ever made. It didn't bring an end to suffering and pain in our lives. We're still jerks and we have problems. But we no longer wonder why we're here. We no longer feel that there's a hole in the middle of our heart. And we know that we have a purpose and that we have a value that extends beyond ourselves. And it has also knit us into a community of people together to strive for the same thing. Love. That's what letting Jesus Christ into your heart amounts to it amounts to i no longer want to live my own way i want to live for love in particular the love of god and i want to share it with him and i want to share it with others and that's what matters most in this world and the only way i can do that is by admitting that i need a savior and that savior is jesus christ a lot of us here have heard this teaching many times Daniel 9, Daniel 9. Oh, I remember the first time I heard Daniel 9. Wow, it was good. Wow, it was powerful. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Oh, it's so exciting. You know, I remember the first time. But what has happened since then? Where is your passion for the things of God? You know, I mean, I asked myself that same question. I remember the first time I heard this kind of thing, and it was just like, more people need to know about this, right? It was just like, how could I have lived 18 years of my life and no one ever showed me anything like this? I've got to tell everybody I know. And now I'm like, "Mm, 
Daniel 9 is pretty cool. Yeah, I remember how great it was. Don't let your passion for the truth and the excitement about the confirmation of the reality that there is a God of the universe who has spoken and He is good and He wants to know you and He loves you and has a purpose for you. Don't let that be suppressed. Don't harden your heart to the realities of the things that we're talking about here because they have eternal consequences. You have people in your life right now that have never heard, that do not know, that have no clue what the Bible teaches, have no clue what the God of the Bible is, and have no clue about how much love and purpose and meaning they could have. The people in your life need the love of God as much as they did the first time you heard this. The only thing that might have changed is you. Your heart. And your sense of excitement and passion about owning it. Don't let your enthusiasm be beaten down by the hammer of time. You know how to get excited about Daniel 9? I'll tell you. I'm an expert in getting excited about things. Share it. Because it will be more exciting when you share it than it was when you heard it. And I don't just mean the first time you share it. I mean... Every time you share it. Share Psalm 22. Share Isaiah 53. When you find the passion ebbing from your spiritual life, it's likely because the the venues outward are being cut off. There's all this coming in all the time, but it has to go out. It has to be connected. It has to be shared in order to live the excitement and the passion, and the truth, and to be connected with the meaning of the things and the weight of the things that we are talking about. Remember Jesus' word to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 3 through 5, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Well, that sounds real ominous, right? He's going to take my lamp. What is my lampstand? It's your light. It's your ability to shine in the darkness. It's not your salvation. It's not your friendship. It's not your love. But he's saying if you won't share and you won't remember and you won't allow your passions to be inflamed by the things of God and by sharing the things of God with others, your light will go away. And your light is a huge part of your purpose and why we're here. So don't just hear another teaching on Daniel 9 and think, huh, oh yeah, I remember. But let it sink deeply. And let all of Scripture sink deeply And know that if your passions are waning, the best way to reignite them is to be involved in the scary, terrifying role of sharing them with someone who's never heard them before. Next week, we'll finish out our Daniel series with this discussion about what this final kingdom is uh, in Daniel 11 and 12. God, thanks for this. Thanks for the time uh, that we have together. Thanks for the incredible way that you've shown in your word um, that you are real. 
that you have spoken and that you want a relationship with us. I pray, God, for anybody here that doesn't know you, I just pray that they would be compelled to dig deeper, to get their questions answered, to um, hear you knocking on the door of their heart, and that they would have the courage to ask the hard questions because we know that you're a God of wisdom and a God of knowledge and you love an honest question. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.